Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. A special thank you to our Patreon supporters. As ever, your support is what helps keep the podcast and everything at the Cosmic Shambles Network going. Uh, if you'd like to sign up, you can go to patreon.com slash bookshambles to subscribe. You'll get extended episodes and lots of other stuff as well. One thing to let you know about this week, if you've not already seen, we have a new podcast that is out this week. It's called Taking the Universe Around the World, and it's Robin's diary as he is on the world tour of Horizons, a 21st century space odyssey with Professor Brian Cox at the moment. He's been writing daily diary entries, which we've been publishing on the Shambles site, and now there is a podcast version as well, which is perfect to listen to as sort of an audiobook of the diaries. And also it features some extra books and extra chat and bits and pieces as Robin and Brian take the Horizons tour uh, currently across North America, the US and Canada, and then later through the UK and Europe and Australia and New Zealand. So that podcast is out now. The first episode is out now. You'll find all the links at cosmicshambles.com slash Horizons Diary. Uh, you'll find the links there to listen to it on SoundCloud or RSS or Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you want, or just search for it in your podcast app. It should come up straight away. Uh, so that is enough of that. Let's get on to today's episode. Here is Robin and our special guest, Rachel Paris. Hello, welcome to Robin and Josie's Book Shambles. I've even changed the order now. It's Robin and Josie's Book Shambles because uh, uh, Josie's um, still on maternity leave. We were hoping she was going to be able to join today, but some things have come up. Uh, she will be back soon. Uh, and uh, just to mention, don't forget, if you can support us via Patreon, uh, that's absolutely fantastic. That's enough of all that stuff. Um, today, we're talking to Rachel Paris, who has a new book out. Uh, it's your first book, isn't it, Rachel? It is, yeah, very much. Very much. It's advice from strangers. <laughs> did you take advice from strangers in terms of writing the book? Uh, yeah, I did, actually. I couldn't uh, live by all of it, uh, but I did try to take advice. I got advice from, like, my friend Andrew Hunter-Murray, who is, I think, a, a proper writer. Uh, and he his advice was, like, write, you know, a, a thousand words a day at 7.30 before you do everything else. And... I can tell you I did not operate that way. <laughs> so took the advice but didn't live by it. Well, that's the Graham Greene advice, isn't it? Because Graham Greene would just, and he would stop where even if he was halfway through a sentence, once he'd hit a thousand words, he would stop there. Really? And then he would go off and, and do his Russian roulette or whatever ever else or, or feel guilty in a Catholic way. And, <laughs> uh, and, and, and that was it, yeah. So, so he, his process was a thousand words every single day. And that just sounds no bonkers, more. to be fair. Yeah. It, it, it's but it's an interesting set if you can do it i think with a lot of comics they probably can't do it because one of the things about being a comedian i don't know if you would agree is the reason that we end up doing comedy live is because we're terrible procrastinators but if people are actually staring at you you have no choice but to perform for 20 minutes 40 minutes or an hour and a half or whatever it is 
Absolutely, 100%. Yeah, a terrible procrastinator. And then you have a gig, so you have to do it. And I'll even, I feel like the only reason I take gigs is I do them, you know, far in the future. And then you have to go and do the gig because you said you would. And then you have to do the material because you're on the stage. So I feel like in many ways, my career is a way of me just increasingly blackmailing myself bit by bit with things that I've taken on and put in the diary. And the book in many ways was the same. So how was it? I mean, you say at the beginning, you know, you, you wrote it during, you know, both a time of elation and also the, the problematic and difficult time you took, you know, it was when you were uh, pregnant and was it pregnant or you just given birth or, or, or both uh, involved? Both involved. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's locked down. And as you say, also, you know, this, this was a time of, of, of grief as well. So I would imagine, you know, one, having that focus of the fact that you couldn't work live must have helped but finding this new way of working I presume was was difficult yeah that is true I definitely was very glad to have a project when like you say live work had dried up so much and um, it felt really good to have an ongoing thing that I needed to set my mind to um and that I could that I was that I was sort of allowed to if you like there was a purpose to it because I think it's like again with comedians and procrastinators of course, you could just write for yourself for no reason every day. Anyone could do that. But for me, I really need to have an exterior force making me do it. Uh, so this was brilliant because I did had an editor saying, you owe me 4,000 words. And so, yeah, for, during lockdown, it was it was really a useful time to to spend that time doing it. And then later finishing off the book, which was after the baby was born, that was not an ideal time <laughs> to write a book at all. Uh, so that was a bit harder. Will we be able to spot through some of the sentence structure the terrible sleeplessness that you experienced? <laughs> I'm, sh- I'm sure. I'm sure you will. Various repetitions and vaguenesses that you'll be like, what is she on about? This must have been September 2021. <laughs> So when did the when did the book start? When did you first decide to? Because it's in, I mean it's interesting because it's not just a, I should you know very much it's you know some people I think when they initially see oh Rachel Paris has written book advice from strangers that it's all going to be kind of comedic but it's not all comedic you know there's some some very kind of serious points in there as well and some very useful bits in terms of about psychology and philosophy and all of those things. Thanks. Um, but yeah, I <laughs> it was quite funny when I was trying to do the quite cringe. Uh, a cringeworthy exercise of gathering quotes for the book before people have really read it. You know, you have to do that. And it's a bit embarrassing. Uh, and asking people with no time, no free time, to provide it, to skim the book and provide a quote for me. And I could tell those who had read it and those who hadn't read it, because like you say, the assumption is that it's all going to be probably funny and probably political. And uh, it's not either of those things all the way through and people who definitely hadn't read the book you can read them on the back now were like yeah i'm looking hilarious hilarious witty wise and witty and the people who had read the book like sarah pascoe were like and cariad were like heartbreaking in equal measure you know like it was just a really clear divide between people who hadn't read it and i don't blame them there's no time um i got asked to write a book of some sort, whether I'd like to, uh, in handily, uh, just before lockdown happened. Um, and I thought, yes, I would like to. And they said, have you got any ideas? And 
I had this idea, which was I had all these pieces of paper with advice on them from strangers in my cupboard. And I thought, well, that's probably a, a unique starting off point that a lot, a lot of people haven't got little bits of paper with advice from strangers on them. Um, so I thought of that. But at the same time, actually, I had the offer, which was paid more uh, to write a book about Jane Austen and feminism from a more academic publisher. Uh, uh, and I wasn't allowed to do both. So I had to make a choice. Uh, and it was actually in summer, uh, August 2020, uh, which was when I was in hospital, uh, losing my first baby at five months, that it was a really clear decision then. I'd been not deciding whether I wanted to do a more personal book, or I could say whatever I wanted, or whether to do the Jane Austen book. And when that was happening, and after that, I was like, no, I, I really want to write uh, about this, or about, I, I want to have the freedom to write about this. I think it will be useful for me. Um, so that really was like the instigating factor in deciding to write yeah, to write a more a more personal book, I suppose. Well, that's what I, I, I really enjoyed about it was the fact that you, I mean, you start off with Billy Connolly's advice on yeah. tea cosies, and then almost immediately we're moving into kind of looking at areas of, you know, of feminism and how you continue to see, you know, kind of patriarchal society and misogyny, and then also about dealing with anxiety. And, you know, there were so many different, and, and I think that's what makes it a joy to, to one of the things that makes it a joy to read is the fact that you're not entirely sure what you're about to walk into as you go get to each new section. So I'm thinking structure must, you know, when you start, that, that must have been, I, I, my imagining, and you may say this is nonsense, was it wasn't that difficult necessarily to write each bit, but it was hard to work out how you take people through this journey. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, I think even when I envisaged writing the book, the idea of having these chapter titles made it very easy to just go, this week I'm going to essentially write an essay about, uh, you know, uh, anxious breakdown. And this week I'm going to write 500 words on toilet paper. Uh, you know, so it was really easy, like you say, to break it down. But putting them together... In, I actually had a text from my editor saying, you're putting too much work into this. People don't really notice as much as you think the order of chapters. Um, don't worry about it. I did worry about it. Uh, <laughs> and I've got a picture, actually, if I like wrote every chapter title down on little pieces of card and sat at the kitchen table, moving them around like a sort of war captain with those little horses, you know, kind of. And even I think there's even links from chapter to chapter that uh, you wouldn't notice probably as a reader, but I enjoyed them. Like, I think Don't Be a Dick comes just before the chapter about Boris Johnson. So like, just little links like that kind of, and I did want you to go, you know, serious light, serious light, so that it wasn't too overwhelming. I, I was wondering when you wrote it, how many times that at the end of writing some of the essays in particular, which were uh, dealing with, you know, the the, problems of loss the problems of anxiety the problems of surviving in the world that if did you find at the end of that process that you had managed to perhaps reorder some of your brain as well that you you were like oh because I found that when I wrote a book ages ago about kind of comedians and lots of other bits and pieces uh, and it was at the end of it I was like oh I've just worked out something about me oh you know that kind of yeah just by the, the experience of typing 
yeah I did definitely yeah and, th and there were things that I wrote that helped me to do that that didn't end up in the book as well uh the particularly just the the catharsis of writing about the loss um and not just about my loss but about loss in loss in general and people's attitude to that um the, the chapters about about that going from the loss to the, the second pregnancy and then to having a baby were the only chapters in the book that I wrote as essentially like diary entries with with a date you know saying when I wrote them because otherwise I would have had to have awkwardly gone back and gone oh I thought that then but I now I don't feel that way particularly writing about how hard I found it being around other people who were pregnant and other people who had babies and that dissipated obviously over time but I wanted to keep it in um the sort of quite ugly feelings that I had at the time um and I think if I tried to write that as a chapter all together and edited it now you know when edit when the editorial process happened it would have needed to have been softened and to have made sense of my place now whereas doing it as a diary entry was very helpful and very cathartic to be like, look, this is how I feel right now. And it's not very nice. And I wonder if anyone else has felt this way as well. Um, and then I was able to say in the next one, that feeling has passed a little bit. Uh, so yeah, it was it was definitely helpful sorting out my own feelings in my head. And now that it's been out, I, I would imagine you're beginning to get, because this, I, I think it's a very interesting thing to watch now with a lot of people who are predominantly known for being comedians that, uh, you know, putting themselves out there and saying right while I was doing these jokes also this was happening in my life uh, mm. seems to be a very effective way of allowing other people to give other people permission to speak um, you know in the in the the way obviously that I've, I've just been reading Hannah Gadsby's you know uh, oh, yeah. book and and obviously with Nanette as well it, it, it was for a lot of people that I spoke to who went to see that it had an incredible effect on them and it's an, it's a total change to me of what comedy comedy used to a lot of you know the, you we think of trad comedy as someone putting on the mask and then you read the biography and go oh my god they had all those secrets whereas now it seems that comedy has ended up being a, a useful way of people revealing their own you know what might have previously been their secrets and then other people saying well I'm allowed to now as well I think that is true yeah I think whether it's a comedian talking about it or you know, another kind of entertainer talking about it. Um, I think just it being in the public eye generally means that people do feel able to talk about those things. With some of the topics, I almost felt a bit of a fraud because people have said to me in the past and with regard to the book, thank you for making it possible <laughs> for us to now be open about it. That's really helpful. And that made me feel as if they thought I'd done it as a public service. And I feel like that's slightly aggrandizing what I was doing. And actually it was more helpful for me <laughs> than anything else. Uh, so I suppose I'm, I'm feeling the benefit of other people having done that before me. And I felt able therefore to talk about it. Um, but yeah, I think as a byproduct of me wanting to write about it it might help other people talk about it as well whether that be like I say you know loss or pregnancy or uh you know going bonkers 
Well, that is, I think it's important to feel like a fraud as well. I think, yeah. you know, all, all the comics, there's something about, I mean, I know you, your music, of course, is where it starts with you, but there is, you know, you've been in comedy for a very long time and there is yeah. that thing where comedians, in the end, there's always a little club comic that's saying, it's just jokes, it's just jokes. <laughs> You've done, that, that's all you're meant to be, just jokes. And, and yeah. something, oh, I, oh no, I've done something that might have helped people as well. It's only meant to be jokes. I feel terrible about this. I'm so sorry for being in any way helpful. Anyway, this horse goes into a bar. Um, There's the, still uh, this bit in, in, the, in the show I'm touring now, which is such a weird, it's good, it's a good show, but it is odd because I wrote it, obviously, in January 2020. That's the show everyone bought tickets for. And then it's been postponed three times. Um, and I'm doing it now. And so it has some material that is about the two years before January 2020. And then obviously a lot of catch up material that I hastily wrote about COVID and having a baby. Uh, so <clears throat> that's quite a lot of big information to fit into one show. But I feel I feel I've got this compulsion now actually to talk about some of those bigger things. Um, and I obviously, I don't talk about all of them, but the mental health stuff I feel is interesting enough to warrant being in the show. And the show's so much about big life changes that it would be meant, it would be mad not to put it in. But I still, unlike Hannah Gadsby, haven't nailed how to do it. Uh, I'm still, even now having, I'm near, I'm coming towards the end of my tour show and you would think by the end of the tour show, you figured out how to do it or dispensed with it. And I have done neither. I've kept it in and I struggle through it every show. <laughs> I'm like, here's the bit, because I think it's in me. I think it's still, even though people are talking about it now much more so, still there's an awkwardness in me that I fear the audience thinking oh god why is she talking about this we bought tickets for a comedy show Ooh. and so even when I bring it up there's a part of me that is like I'm sorry sorry for bringing this up I probably just need to write more jokes about it <laughs> you, you have to remind yourself sometimes that not everything has to be a joke but it does have to be interesting. I yes, it does have to be interesting. And yeah. that's what your book is. Your book is perpetually interesting. It's it's like it's it's got. I mean, it, it it's incredible for the amount the amount of distance that you travel in this. Uh, I mean, how much didn't make it in? Because I I would imagine there were certain chapters that I read and I thought, oh my god, I, I bet you were going, oh hang on, I've just hit ten thousand words on this. You know, what was oh, the most yeah. unwieldy one for for you? What was the one where you went, I'm enjoying writing this so much, it's actually a book on its own. Well, there are two different answers. The most unwieldy one by far was the one that, well, inevitably I wrote last because I've been putting it off, trying to write it for a year. It was the one about music, actually, mm. uh, which isn't the mo most in-depth personal one by any means, but um, it was the only chapter that was about music on its own, like definitely about music and nothing else. And therefore I really... I've got so much to say. <laughs> I've got so much to say about music in so many different ways about music as a performer, about my opinions about how to teach music to young people, how to introduce music to people, um, about the music that I love, about the music that my loved ones love. What well, you know, like there's so many facets to it. And to limit that to, I think in the end it was 5,000 words, but I, I initially wrote probably about 10,000 but never at one time because I'd write 2,000 and then delete it and 2,000 and delete it and decide that is not 
that is not interesting. I could have honestly written a whole chapter about what it has meant to me to play the piano in churches, which is something I've done a lot of, and I'm not a Christian, but I've played the piano in a lot of Christian churches and what that, the emotions that has caused in me, um, the service that you're providing, the way that you have to be present, but sort of invisible, um, but the role that you can play in other people's emotions on big days or just your average Sunday or in a school, like even that, so that that got reduced to about 200 words. <laughs> I could have written a chapter on it. So that was an unwieldy one. I found that so, so hard. Um, yeah, I can't remember what the other options are. I think as well, isn't it, that when you're in love with something, yeah, and then you start to worry, is it like when someone's first started going out with their new partner, they go, another little thing he does with his hat. And you yes. think, I've got to stop talking about that little thing he does with his hat. Because, um, But God, I would love to, to read a, a long book for, about music from you because I think it's Jude Rogers has just written what looks like a very interesting uh, book about the importance of music. And uh, oh. I know some, some of the scientists and stuff, that some of the people who've done research into it, you know, the incredible stuff about different things involving dementia and, again, mental health and all of these yeah. things are just... It's, there's such a story to tell there's so much to say about it I feel like I really miss um, the non-comedy music that I've done all my life I only really stopped three years ago um, you know I started teaching when I was 16 and I've taught piano all the way through that and singing and stuff like that and the, the things that you get in terms of your own mental health of having a time in your week when you're doing something that is nothing to do with you. You know, you're just helping children to learn a song and to sing, and you're arranging something for them, like transposing it and doing harmonies that work for them that aren't too complicated. Um, or you're teaching someone, I, I enjoyed, in some ways I enjoyed more teaching more advanced piano because you can get into, you know, the finicky bits of it, but actually teaching tiny children beginners piano can be really special and even when they can't really learn to read music yet they're too little to what I would do with them is I'd get them to bang like, and I get my baby to do it now I just sit at the piano and, and bang away and I play bass notes and use the sustain pedal quite cleverly <laughs> so that it sounds like what he's doing sounds like music and I think that's really important for people learning that before they can really make, you know, sounds that we recognise as nice, that they feel like they are able to make music um, before they really can. And you can do that, you can facilitate that as a teacher and that they can be creative, that there are no wrong notes initially. So yeah, I, I didn't, that didn't make it into the book, but I did, I would like to write another book about it. So your baby's already on that way from grade eight to grade seven as you Yes, were, absolutely. Yeah. He'll be very advanced. <laughs> Did you? Did, I mean that that process of uh, because the, the trouble is, I, th I think very often that we we're only seen as people are, are meant to be one thing. Mm. Um, did you? How did you feel that journey? I mean, well, I was going to actually mention as well the, the choral tour story is particularly uh, kind of well. I, I found it quite shocking, really, about when you talk about uh, you know that thing where sometimes we're always told comedians are the worst kind of people, and actually, you know, even finding out that. Choral, European choral tours you go oh my this is a little bit grotesque isn't it yeah yeah I know I want it was funny writing that because I was just obviously writing a chapter about respecting women in general and that story which um for those who haven't read the book is uh basically about 
being slut shamed, uh, essentially. Uh, and I absolutely balance it with the time when I slut shamed someone. Um, it's very common and it's interesting being on both sides of it. But like very publicly slut shamed in a company of people who were not really my friends um, was was really uh, really painful, actually. But I didn't hadn't thought about it since I was 24 or whatever I was. Um, it was just in the middle of writing the chapter. I thought, oh, God, that happened. Uh and it's funny what sti- what sticks in your brain, and I can I can remember like every moment of it and how unfair it felt. Um, so yeah, the, the w- <laughs> women being horrible to women, you know, is absolutely a part of feminism <laughs> that needs addressing. Hello, sorry to disturb the conversation. Just to say, you are listening to the abridged version of Josie and Robin's book shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version, then you can support us via Patreon and get all of the other bits of tittle-tattle that dropped out of our mouth. What was it? What, what did you start to notice when you started going into comedy as well? What was the difference between being backstage uh, for a music event and being backstage at a comedy event? Because I, I would imagine we're seeing very different, or would appear at least to be very different psychologists playing out, or maybe not. Well, I suppose in terms of my experience of music, it was all or nothing in terms of how many people there were, because there was often a concert full of people, i.e. a choir, an orchestra, like loads, loads more than you would have at a comedy gig, or one, (laughs) me, (laughs) um, doing a solo concert. So uh, I think that there, in my experience, there was there were fewer nerves at the musical concert. Um, Certainly, I suppose, when I was starting out in comedy, I was on the same level as a lot of other people. We were all sort of not experienced enough to feel completely comfortable. Um, Whereas, I suppose, generally, with with singing, choral singing, like, there's a... It's not as (laughs) nerve-wracking. You're doing it so much as a team. And I think that's... I suppose, actually, the choir experience is more like the improv experience. There is, um, depending on how long you've been in the group, a camaraderie there, a sort of easiness of like an excitement, certainly, but not that nerves that you can get with comedy, or I can anyway. And what about the uh, the interest in Jane Austen? Obviously, people who read the book will know that uh, they can get a small smattering of your uh, um, saucy Jane Austen novel, which is on your, did you say on your your fans page? I can't remember where you're going to find that one. But but that that interest, I mean, obviously, having been asked also to write a book about feminism and Jane Austen and doing Ostentatious as well, then I presume this, this, this is Jane Austen isn't just something that you walked into through improvisation, or was is that the way round that you? No, you've... it was. It was. Oh, right. Yeah, we. I'd read some Jane Austen novels and really liked them, and I've always loved the classics. I've always sort of been interested in that world, but not Jane Austen particularly. And then we started doing Ostentatious, and we chose Jane Austen because all of us knew it a bit, and uh, we knew it would make the most popular, probably, type of genre for improv. Um, and it's only since doing that. I think we started in 2010, I think, um, that we all got much more interested in it. Um, and I particularly went <laughs> went for it and read, you know, over the next few years, read all the novels 
twice and what I'd already seen a lot of the adaptations but and we would do study nights you know we'd do study at the beginning we wanted to do this well so we would each take a subject like I remember Carriad doing a presentation to us on military history of the time and uh, Andy Murray doing hobbies hobbies and pastimes of 1814 uh, and I took I think uh, fashion and etiquette like we all we, we wanted to know that world, but then I really have got very into it. And then it's that thing, isn't it? People offer you a job to do with it, which makes you study it more, which makes you even more interested in it. So um, I genuinely do now. I, I love the novels and I think they've got a lot. I think they're worthy of study. Where would you, for, for people who've not read Jane Austen, because obviously some people didn't you know, read Jane Austen at school and some people might have just not got around to it, where would you start? What do you think is the best first novel to get a sense of Jane Austen and, and her brilliance? I genuinely think, and it's a popular one, that Pride and Prejudice is the best one to start with because you've got a likeable heroine, which not all of them have, let's face it. Um, <laughs> Fanny Price is, seems a bit insipid on first reading and Emma seems spoilt and annoying on first reading. So you've got a likeable heroine, you've got a, a cast of really good, funny characters. There's like proper humour in it that isn't in all of them, I think. Um, it's straightforward. It's not like trying to be an, a, a parody in the way that Northanger Abbey is. So you can only read Northanger Abbey with an awareness of what it was parodying. Um, so I think Pride and Prejudice is a good starter, but I think the best one is Persuasion, which was written at the end of her life, the year before she died, with her own perhaps romantic, uh, uh, not regrets, but like reflecting back on what her life had been. Um, and it seems much more emotional and genuine. It's more poetic than any of her other novels, much more beautiful. And who were your first, when you, you, I was just thinking, for instance, you know, books by comedians. Did you ever, when you were growing up, were there any books by comedians that you'd read? Really, no. I I didn't know anything about comedy. And I think that's why it took me a relatively long time to even consider trying it. Um, we didn't, we weren't a very, we weren't a comedy household, you know. <laughs> we, we watched like Victoria Wood on TV. And me and my brother loved uh, Reeves and Mortimer. And actually, like Punt and Dennis uh, and French and Saunders, all the duos. And so they're, they're, we loved watching it on TV, but I didn't, we would, I don't know how to describe, we were just a normal household in Leicester. But comedy was not a thing. Like, I don't know where I would have gone to see comedy live. You know, uh, it just it just wasn't really a, thing that I that anyone I knew knew about either it wasn't just our family like no one was very uh, aware of it apart from the people on tv who seemed just a million miles away it didn't seem like something you could really do so no I, I didn't really read any comedy books but I did know enough that I knew I loved what Victoria Wood was doing and of course Leicester is home to one of the great comedy writers of the 20th century Sue Townsend mm. Oh, yeah, of course. Which is, uh, I always think, Sue Townsend and Joe Orton. That's not a bad, yeah. that's a pretty good double bill pretty of, good. Uh, of, of two quite, but both of them very interesting diaries. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> both of them writing diaries with uh, a, a obsession with penises, one Adrian his own and obviously Joe Orton's other people's. Uh, <laughs> and, and his own as well, I should say. That's the... Uh, so what did you read when you were growing up? What, what were the first books that you kind of loved? What were your first, did you have a favourite series of books or...? 
Yeah, I did. I did. But I loved Enid Blyton, which now obviously not ideal. Um, <laughs> and and then Fanny ran into little uh, <laughs> Lorenzo, who was a, a boy down the road who couldn't be trusted. <laughs> why, why not? <laughs> we won't get into that, but let's say he wasn't pale. Um, yeah, I did. I, I loved Enid Blyton books from like the far away. I loved uh, all sort of like fantasy fairies and goblins and that kind of thing so the faraway tree and all those books and i love the famous five and not so much the mallory i did like mallory towers but like the adventure fantasy type stuff and that carried on in later childhood so i loved lord of the rings um and anything like anything like that kind of thing and then I got into the I got into the classics like when I was from like eleven onwards. Read Jane Eyre for the first time at eleven and was obsessed with it. Yeah, Jane Eyre is fantastic, isn't it? It's amazing. It really is. and, and, and someone we always mention on this, but Jean Reese White Sagasso C is uh, yeah. such an in, incredible piece. I, I was not. I didn't manage to get to her. I was. I did a gig very near the the village that she lived in, which she said was a very boring village. Yeah. And the people did not enjoy it. It's Cheriton Fitzpain, I think it, uh, it, it it is. Uh, but she's such an interesting character, and, and it's like once you've read that, it makes. Rochester just such a monster. I mean, it does yeah. change it. That that sense that I think when people first read it, sometimes you can still see a romance and he can be a tragic figure. But if you then put in Gene Reese's version of what he was as a young man, how he made that mad woman in the attic, it's like ah, oh, it's, it's every time I reread it, he's more awful than before. I only actually dipped into it for the writing of my book you know because I write obviously about Jane Eyre and the mad woman and I knew I have never read it all the way through but I read uh, enough of it to inform the chapter I was writing but not enough of it to satisfy I need to read it properly and really get into it but I sort of I'm sad because you know I grew up thinking what a great romance it was between Rochester and Jane Eyre and I sort of don't want to lose that but I'll have to <laughs> well, you can you can keep them as separate worlds, maybe, yeah. maybe, just about. I mean, all Jean Reese's books, because her earlier ones that she wrote in the twenties and thirties as well, it's a fascinating thing. She kind of writes the same story, but it's not this. You know, it's 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 in 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 terms of you know her experience. It's yeah, it's she's just magnificent. But I don't need to tell the listeners this because they'll have heard me bang on about Jean <laughs> Reese a thousand times before. Who who do you think's been the most influential in terms of of of, of books that you've read? What are the ones where you think, oh, hang on a minute, that still hangs mm-hmm. over me now? I think in in more recent, relatively recent years, my brilliant friend uh, has stayed in my head really in a really sticky way. Um, and obviously on all, all of the ensuing books, I read the first, uh, there's four, isn't there? I read the first. If Josie like, was on, she would be able to tell you because she's a huge Eleanor <laughs> friend, and I've still not read any. But don't tell Haven't her. Haven't you? Oh my no, god! No, I know I should. They're amazing. Like I read the first two or three uh, first when they were each respectively out, and then a big gap. And then Sarah Pascoe sent me the fourth one in the post during lockdown, um, and it's such a. It, it's interesting that you can become so absolutely lost in a world that you do not recognize it's unrecognizable um it sort of begins in the 1950s i think uh in um naples in a really poor 
crime-ridden neighbourhood of Naples. And so on the one hand, it's about that world and that time. But on the other hand, it's this absolutely recognisable universal description of female friendship. Uh, not that all female friendships are like this, but you really recognise it as a female friendship that you've had. Uh, it's so complicated and twisted. And I had a friendship like it when I was really young at primary school, which, you know, essentially was a real mixture of bullying and in incredibly intense love. And it, it, you know, the idea that like ch childhood friendships can be really messed up uh, and then the books take you right through, right through to old age. So it's, yeah, I find her writing amazing. I also read The Lying Life of Adults, her more recent book, and I enjoyed that a lot as well. That's more about coming of age story. But yeah, I think that has, I don't know about influenced me, but it's something that has, you know, lived in my head. And what about, I mean, I presume it's very hard at the moment to manage to find time to read. Are you uh, Are you managing to, to get anything read? Yeah, uh, I am. I'm, at the moment, I try to curb it, but I'm obsessed with crime thrillers. And once I get on a series, I go like from one to the other. Uh, and they're not highbrow. I mean, some of them are highbrow, but I don't read the highbrow ones. Um, but I love, I love the Jack Reacher novels. I just find them a perfect, they're exactly what they are. They know exactly what they are and they know what you want. And he's written shitloads of them. <laughs> so you're just, you finish one and you're like, I want to read another one. And there is one. I literally made a list. I can show you on my phone yesterday of ones I've read and ones I haven't read so that I don't repeat one. And it's about half and half, about like 12 I've read and 12 I haven't. Um, and it they're so, they're so satisfying to read. Um, yeah, so... Uh, crime thrillers I I didn't read for a long time I had sort of like the last few years there have been periods where I haven't been able to turn my head to it but in the last few months yeah I've loved it because I've, I've crime I've, I've not read that much crime stuff I've read a bit of Ian Rankin stuff but then I've I was reading some descriptions of Val McDermott who always to me seems like such a fascinating person she's but, I met her last week oh well, um, where was that at uh, breaking the news in Glasgow um and we went to the same we both went to St Hilda's in Oxford uh so we were like hello <laughs> we have this in common she's amazing yeah i love her her writing's great but it said like some of the the things used to kill people sound terrible I, I find that very hard now I, I i've the old you know when i was a kid i loved horror movies and all that kind of stuff and now i find the the really kind of brutal is i i can't go on holiday there now whether it's a book or a film or whatever I know what you mean actually i've i found that actually since having a baby i didn't expect it to affect me in this way but uh, I haven't found it so much with books, but with film and TV, I cannot deal with the really brutal or actually overly tragic stuff. More, actually, less brutality, more more like in intensely tragic. Um, even like Peaky Blinders, the last series of Peaky Blinders that I love, and I think it's absolutely phenomenal. We did get through it, but I nearly stopped watching it in the first few episodes because I was like, it's too much. I can't handle how sad this is, like what they chose to do. And I feel angry at the makers. I'm like, don't you know that you've put us through enough? Like that is too, that's too much tragedy. But um, yeah, I, I know what you mean about that. 
Yeah, there's that. There was a book I've just been reading, which is a brilliant novel, but uh, I won't say what it was because it would give away the ending. But it was a, a novel that I was so determined that there would be hope in the final page, and there's a kind of hope, but it's not. It's still a hope that means everyone dies, oh. and something is left behind, and then you go, "Oh, I didn't. I don't want that now." Yeah. <laughs> it's not that I want happy go lucky. It's not, nothing, no. it doesn't, it's not that everything needs to be cheery. But I just, I just, you know, I, th- I think more and more people are just going. I just need a bit more hope somewhere. Yeah. Somewhere. Everyone needs it more now, I think, than they did two years ago. <laughs> you know. Um, oh, I was going to say I'd recommend. Like, I'm not trying to foist crime thrillers on you, but I would recommend an author called Claire McGowan. Mm. who has written a series it's not too many as well it's about five books set now uh but it has flashbacks to the troubles in northern ireland um she comes from a border town and it's really good so it is about the the mystery and the crime but it's also quite interesting about the politics of that time as well she grew up surrounded by all of that so yeah claire mcgowan have a look Brilliant. I'll check that out. And the uh, um, just finally, in, in terms of satire and where we've ended up at the yeah. current time, do you uh, have you yet entered that kind of Tom Lehrer moment where you know when Henry Kissinger won the Nobel Peace Prize and he went right, that's it. Oh, there's no point in me writing these songs. Is, <laughs> is there a point as you look at this this near you know kind of cruel parody that we see of politics? Is there a bit of you that goes, I don't think I really want to take this on or does it make you even more determined to 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 take on this kind of you know duplicity and clumsiness and cruelty i find it really hard to do satire at the moment um and i think with help from having jobs like the mash report and late night mash making you do it same way i say i take gigs on to make you do it Doing that job makes me write it week by week when it's on air. Um, and that has been present in my life enough for me to like write about big enough issues. And there's often in in my role on those shows, the way it has been, I've been able to write about topics that are slightly not about that week's news, but bigger things like violence against women and stuff like that. Um, uh, Leveling up and, you know, bullshit like that. So um, but in in my sort of ongoing comedy material, I yeah I do feel like giving up. I don't know what I don't know what to say about it when I'm not kind of forced to by a TV show because there's nothing I've there's nothing I've got to say that that is particularly unique I think or that isn't just uh, calling calling them names. And to be honest, I do in my show. I just call them names um, and people like it because they're so angry it's just a catharsis for everyone to go yeah call them that name they are as well and just find increasingly creative ways of saying i think one thing i can do is explain (laughs) possibly preaching to the choir um but explain what they're doing wrong and how badly they're doing in a funny way but in a funny but articulate way that's what I tried to the bit the bit of satire I do in my show. That's what I sort of do is go bit by bit, just going, this is what Chris Grayling did. This is what Gavin Williamson did. This is what Pretty Patel did. And with each of them, there's like a funny thing. 
and a really insidious thing because I think that's what gets forgotten so like with Chris Grayling it's like oh we gave a ferry contract to someone with no ferries that's funny but also he tried to stop prisoners having access to books mm. you know there's like oh they're so rubbish so there's like Pretty Patel oh yeah she kept saying counter-terrorism instead of terrorism oh she can't use words but also tried to change maritime law to make it possible for uh you know for people to drown uh in the channel so I think it's worth I feel like the one thing I can do is sort of use comedy as clarity almost um but I struggle with it yeah I find it really hard Oh well, I'm glad you do do that. I think it's again. I think it's a useful thing to do because I think you're right. It gets these things get lost the moment it's the next day's news, yeah. And uh, and the the they're just some clowns, is yeah. Uh, and people useful. get uh, what's there's an expression for it, isn't? I think it's uh, like outrage fatigue. Mm. I think is the phrase that like uh, Johnson even is setting his cabinet aside. Like even he alone has done so many things that were worth resigning over that have outraged the country and has and it's very clever of it all he's done is not resign uh under enormous pressure still just gone no i won't resign and he's got away with it because people they're tired you can't be you can't sustain an equal level of anger so the next time something happens it doesn't go sort of higher and higher and higher it just stays at the same level of outrage and you're like oh this again well he didn't resign last time so he probably won't resign this time and yeah, I don't know. I really feel quite <laughs> despairing about it. Yeah, I shouldn't have ended on this. You're right. It, no, it, not, I, you I know, know. I know exactly what you mean. It's it's uh, there, there. There is a point that you go. Surely this can't be the next. Surely that can't happen. Surely yeah. that can't. You know, Dominic Cummings. I think was. I, I remember Danny Baker just tweeting. You know, if yes. he doesn't resign, this everything changes. Yeah. And and that was one of the like they watch in America as well. When you watch the Republican Party, which again is just now, it it, it it's it's level. Of of duplicity oh and greed God. and and frankly criminality. Yes, and that's the role model. That's the role that that's what they can do here. Yeah. And that is all of those billions spent giving money to to friends. I, I mean, you know, the number of friends I have who lost people due to terrible policies on care homes mm -hmm. and uh, also just not bringing in. It's ah, uh, oh, we're just just ah. Oh. Um, your book though, um. Subtitle everything I know from people I don't know. That's always the hard thing, isn't it? They always want a subtitle now, don't they? Thankfully, they suggested it and I liked it because I'm I'm quite willful and they they said they want a subtitle and I was like, do they? I don't know. And they said it's helpful. And they sent that and I was like, well, that's quite good, but I'm sure I'll be able to think of a better one. And I spent a week coming up with other ones and I was like, no, theirs is better. So I'll just use <laughs> I love the but fact that it's needed to, ah, Rachel Paris advice from strangers. What could that be? I need it <laughs> m explained more. But it is uh it's out now. It is uh um as I said it's a really it it it's a book which at times is very very funny and then moves it uh, I I thought it's very I don't know if seamless is the right word but the way you take us through sometimes things of 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 great sadness and worry as well is is beautifully done. Thank and you. Uh, so I'd highly recommend it uh to everyone who's listened to this. Thank you very much, Rachel. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Rachel's book is out now. You'll find it at any good independent bookshop or website of your choosing. Remember, our new podcast series, Taking the Universe Around the World, is out now. 
support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash bookshambles. Rate, like, review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be back next week with another new episode of Book Shambles. Josie will be back with us very soon. We've got some dates in the diary where she'll be joining us back in the studio to record some episodes. So until next week, take care, stay safe. Bye for now. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. (laughs) 